Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Many men might have accomplished much more than they did for the glory of God if they had not given themselves up to an activity which wore them out while they were young. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We're going to listen to a sermon by Adolf Menad. It was preached in France in the year 1856. Joel, we have received just great positive comments lately. This one's coming from Phil, who has a Patreon with us, but he sent this to us over Twitter. And he's talking about the most recent episode of the Ethiopia Deep Dive Part 3. And he said, absolutely love this deep dive. I actually didn't listen to it on Patreon. But I love the conclusion of this one. So fascinating. Give it a listen, y'all. He's saying that to the public here on Twitter. Uh, now, l- glad Phil was able to enjoy this episode. We're very grateful that he was able to listen to it. But he is on Patreon. And if you want to listen to deep dives and not be behind, you can listen to The London Fire of 1666, which just came out. And it is a fantastic episode full of intrigue, wars, plagues, uh, all the things you could possibly want in a good story from history. And if if you haven't listened to the deep Ethiopia deep dives, all of those are currently on the free feed for you to listen to. And I think that they are all really interesting history that, that most people don't know about. Another uh, comment was on Twitter as well. It said, I know it, there's been many, but these were two I found. Uh, this person said, tonight I'll be tapping into an episode of Re- at Revive Thoughts. Rest easy, everyone, and check out the podcast below with a little picture mm. of him listening to the most recent John Calvin episode. And I really like that because the picture, it just sells. It looks good, looks nice. So if you are shouting us out on uh, Twitter or any, you can put the picture. I highly encourage you to. It's, it's an eye catcher. It looked really nice seeing our logo out there. So thank you yeah. so much for sharing that. Yeah, I love a good shout out. Uh, today, we're talking about Adolf Menad. Adolf Menad from France. Adolf, not a common name we hear in today's <laughs> generation, but uh, back in the day, actually a pretty popular name. Uh, Hitler kind of ruined it for everybody there, but this is this is a hundred <laughs> years before Hitler, so. <laughs> so I just wanted to just funny about like Adolf really ruined. He really ruined the name Hitler. He did a lot of bad things, but one thing he did is he took Adolf off of the uh, off the name. He did. Of a lot of I mean, that's pretty. Well. That's pretty uh, un- <laughs> inarguable. Haven't been a lot of Genghis Khans, and there haven't been a lot of Adolf since these guys lived. We have not had very many speakers from France, uh, and that all changes today. We're going to add more to the French repertoire. There's a few historical reasons why that is the case, but it is nonetheless still exciting to have uh, more coming to us from France in the 19th century. Manad was born in the year 1802 in Switzerland. And his family was a wealthy, aristocrat family of preachers from that area. And Menad studied theology at Geneva from 1820 to 1824. 
And throughout his childhood, it seems he lived in Switzerland, Denmark, France. So he was he was pretty well traveled across all the European cities. He saw all of Europe, it seems like, and uh, he became ordained to be a minister. But at that time, uh, he admits that he was not a believer. He had he had yet to go through a conversion experience, even while being an ordained minister. Uh, which is interesting and not the first time we see people like that. This is not the first time we've seen this at all. If you're a regular listener, you've been checking out episodes, you know that this is actually something that happens not as infrequently you know, as you would think. Uh, Martin Luther was famously a monk before justification by faith got a hold of him. I think one of maybe the most famous examples is John and Charles Wesley, who both point to their conversion around the year 35 after they'd already been spending several years in ministry. Uh, there, there are other examples too, and we've covered a lot of them. These guys tend to recognize, I, it, from my perspective, they seem to recognize the idea of God, but they tend to use works to try to get their way to heaven, and they struggle with feeling secure in their salvation because of that, for good reason. And they are worried their works are just not good enough, and that they're going to kind of fail. They're hyper focused on this good enough. But Manad also had another struggle in Europe at that time. It was very common to be out there questioning uh, the Bible. And, you know, oh, it's just an old book. It's a book of fairy tales. You know, this would have been after the Age of Reason was published uh, by Thomas Paine. And this idea that the Bible was the inerrant source of truth was deeply under attack in that part of Europe. Uh, and it, and you, you weren't considered smart. You know, you were considered a little simple-minded uh, if you just believed that the Bible was true. And Manat was very intelligent and had, had what he said was, you know, intellectual pride. I, I was too smart to be one of the simple-minded Christians who just believed the Bible because it said it was God, right? Eventually, though, a uh, revival was sweeping through Switzerland, and some of his friends were getting changed, and they saw his attitude, they saw his criticisms of the Bible, and they began to pray for him and just prayed, you know, he should approach it like a child. And and after a while, it worked. The passionate revivals uh, swept over his life. He began to uh, see the gospel in a new way and, and was convicted of that sin, convicted of that pride. And realize that, you know, no, I, I was questioning is something like hell a real place or it could God be a trinity and realizing, yes, those things are true, not because intellectuals have decided it, uh, but because God has said it to us in his word. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I hear, you know, King Solomon saying that there's nothing new under the sun because I feel like this is uh, not you know, too distant from common arguments that you hear today, these these debates around whether Jesus was truly God, especially amongst like your, the progressive Christians of, of this era, uh, is hell a real place? You know, like things like that, uh, the true divinity of Jesus. These are things that uh, seem like edgy, com- you know, uh, debatable topics in today's era, um, but that is nothing new in the, in the scale of history here. This uh, again, mid 1800s in Europe, they all went through the same thing uh, that I feel like America is is kind of starting to go through now. But Manad again was was against this mindset, and it got him in a lot of trouble uh, from his congregants. It was not fashionable uh, to debate these things, uh, and you were in the minority if you were to claim the you know an inherent deity of Jesus or that hell is a, a real place. And it actually got him investigated in his church, and he was forced to resign because of these beliefs for preaching that Jesus was God and that hell was real. But he didn't uh, let it bother him too much. He didn't hold any bitterness. That same year, he met and married his wife, and together they had seven children, 
several of which would grow to be famous in their own rights. One of them became a well-known pastor himself. Even though he got kicked out of uh, his initial church, he would eventually go back to preaching and teaching. That was his calling. That's what he wanted to do, to, to preach these truths that he saw in the Bible. And eventually, uh, he, he ended up getting a good amount of traction because it was a different way of looking at the Bible than people in France did at that time. It was it was kind of a different take on it. Now, of course, we would look at it that and go, like, that's the biblical take, that's the, the take of truth. Uh, but coming from a, a, a group of people that saw the Bible more metaphorically, having someone over here preaching it as as these ultimate truths here, did start to, to resonate with people. And of course, we see that as as the work of God, right? Using the scriptures to uh, communicate to his people. His sermons would begin to get published and, and circulated and read by many people in Europe to the point to by the time he died, by the time of his death, there were politicians in France that would say that he was, quote, the foremost Christian voice in Europe at that time. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. However, of all his sermons that he spoke, his most famous sermons to us maybe today uh, were very special because they were preached at the end of his life. He had a few months left to live. He's dying at the age of four, you know, 50, sorry, four, 54, pretty young. And he gave a series of sermons, uh, one per month or so, because that was how many he could really give from a health perspective. And even in one of the sermons, he was like, I didn't even know if I could give this sermon today, but, I, but I'm going to do it anyway kind of a thing. Uh, he's giving these sermons truly from his deathbed. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's already, this is it for him. And so he gives this series of five sermons, just kind of, here are my thoughts as I'm really wrapping up life. I know that this is the end for me and I can't do anymore. You still can. Uh, people who are gathering around the deathbed to hear from me. So this is what I'm going to try to, here's what I've been thinking about, thinking about death a lot for the last, you know, couple months because I'm stuck right here dying. Here's what I'm thinking about and would, would, would tell you as you're living your life, as you're still a little bit further from death than me, this is my wisdom and what I'm imparting to you in this time. My strength is exhausted, my dear friends. There was concern with whether I should not keep silent today. I will, however, say to you what I intended, doing it as briefly as I can. One of the things that troubles the Christian who thinks himself near his end is the manner in which he has employed his time. It is consequently one of the subjects of the sermons that he addresses to his brethren who have life still ahead of them. It is written, redeem the opportunity. This version 
is more correct than the often used redeeming the time. To redeem does not here signify buying a second time, but to eagerly seize the opportunities that God offers us because the days are evil so that an opportunity missed can never return. The good use of time taken in a general sense is an idea so vast that it overpowers us when we try to understand it. It is more suitable then to limit it to this and say, lay a hold eagerly of the opportunities as God causes them to arise in your path. How much time, how many opportunities are lost by idleness or unbelief, by negligence or selfishness, by self-will or hesitation, by love of sin, or by a thousand other causes. It is not necessary to pause long here, for there is no Christian whose heart and conscience does not accuse him upon this point. The time that God gives us is precious and sufficient. God, who is just, measures the time to the work and the work to the time. He never gives us a good action to perform for which time is lacking, nor a moment of our existence in which we do not have something good to do. But how can we attain to filling up all our time and doing at least some part of the immense good that a man might do if he put in practice the precept, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And if he were constantly occupied in serving the Lord. I wish to submit to you a few thoughts on the subject, leaving it to your conscience to develop them. First, we must be deeply impressed with the conviction that we are not our own, that our time is not our own, but like all the rest we have belongs to God. It is consequently in God that we must always seek what we have to do in order to fill up the time he gives us and take advantage of the opportunities that he offers us. I assure you that sickness gives precious lessons upon this point. I mean upon the fact that we do not belong to ourselves but to God. Our heart is naturally disposed, and this is the very root of sin, to make itself the center and aim of life. But in sickness and suffering, how can we find consolation if we seek inside ourselves the aim of life? The aim of life is then completely lost. Sickness teaches us that we must seek it elsewhere that we do not live in order to be happy upon the earth, but we live to glorify God, which we can do in sickness as well as in health. And often in sickness, we do it better. Let us then learn from sickness, from all the sufferings of life, and from the whole word of God, that our time belongs to God, and that all we have to do is to employ it to his glory.
Second, let us always be ready diligently to seize the opportunities that God offers us. They will not be lacking, and we will find before us a life interwoven with good works prepared and ready, in which we will only have to walk, in which we will be so well and easily linked together that our life will wholly be made up of good works and obedience. And consequently, as has just been said, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For this, we must have our eyes constantly opened and turned towards God, saying, Lord, here I am. What will you have me do? And when we have done one thing, ask, Lord, what will you have me do now? And so on, without a single interval not filled up with the obedience due to God. God will in this way furnish us with the means of doing an incalculable amount of good. No one can estimate the good that might enter into the life of a single man ruled by such an attitude. Witness the man, Jesus Christ. Even in the things of this world, the men that have done the most are those that have lived on this principle of seizing opportunities. If you study carefully the lives of men who have accomplished the most considerable and numerous works, such as Calvin and Luther, you will see that they undertook things they presented themselves and came in their way, and that they were men called by circumstances gradually to do what they accomplished, while on the contrary, ordinary men who do little are those who do not know how to profit from the opportunities already present. They might perhaps have done as much as the others who have accomplished a great deal, but they had not the art of grabbing hold of the opportunity. The true art of seizing the opportunity is the Christian art of having their eyes always turned towards the Lord. And so being ready to undertake each work as he provides it, and when one work is done, to go to another. It is prodigious what can be accomplished in the life of a man and so simply following the path that the Lord opens before each of us. Third, we must regulate our actions with order and method and not abandon to chance the use of the time that God gives us. I said some days ago that we should not make plans for ourselves, but there is no contradiction in saying that we ought to act with method, provided our method is undertaken in the Lord. To do what God gives us to do, there must be method and order. It is desirable to have regular hours for rising in the morning and for our work. To be as exact as possible in the hours at which we take our meals and in all our various occupations. Life then becomes much more simple and easy. It is like a well-adjusted framework in which the Lord has only to act. The men who have done the most are those who know best how to regulate calmly and steadily 
their course of life, especially if they know how to add to their firmness and activity of mind and a warmth of heart that do not always accompany a spirit of order and method, but which when combined enable a man to do the most astonishing things. It is said that Kant, the philosopher, sometimes amused himself in calling his servant and taking him to witness that for 40 years he had risen every morning regularly at four o'clock. Think what a man may do who rises every morning at that hour. And then think of the beneficial results of the method, independently of the early hour of the rising. From the fact of having a regular hour of rising, how much more time will I not have to consecrate to the Lord? For the simple reason of my having set the hour aside in a spirit of prayer before God, taking into account the dictates of a Christian prudence and wisdom. While on the contrary, if I rise at any hour, the time will be regulated only by the impulse of the moment. That is to say, by various circumstances over which I have triumphed, by my idleness, my desire of a little more sleep, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So your poverty comes, and not only poverty of money, but of mind, of labor, and of the service of God. And so, method and life peacefully regulate before the Lord as a thing of the highest importance to enable us to do much for the service of God. And finally, not unnecessarily to multiply personal reflections, let us keep our bodies and minds in such an attitude as will bring no hindrance to that good use of time. And of the gifts we have received to be employed in a way agreeable to God. Sadness, unevenness of temper, the seduction of self-will, the desire of human glory. There are so many obstacles that surround and harass us unceasingly and over which we must triumph against them all. We must not neglect the body. Delicate health or weakness of body are often great obstacles in the accomplishment of our work for God. We must accept these weaknesses when God sends them, but it is our duty to take all the necessary precautions to strengthen our bodies for His service and glory. This idea elevates and sanctifies everything. Many men might have accomplished much more than they did for the glory of God if they had not given themselves up to an activity which wore them out while they were young. And those who die young should examine if they have not to reproach themselves with the neglect of certain simple and easy precautions in which it is difficult always to persevere but that would have allowed them to labor longer for the service of God. But above all, let us be careful to strengthen the mind and soul and to avoid all that may hinder the work that God will accomplish in us and by us. My friends, 
None of us know how long God may still leave us here, but we know the time he has already given us and the reproaches that we deserve for the use we have made of it. Let us lay hold upon the portion still remaining before us, whether strong or weak, sick or in health, living or dying. We have a Savior. Every moment of whose time was engaged in obedience to God, let us follow His footsteps to glory by the cross. And at the end, we will hear that loving voice saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. This line uh, by Manad really kind of stood out to me. Our heart is naturally deposed. The root of it is sin. But when we're sick and suffering, we don't find ourselves the consolation of our life. We realize that if we're just trying to live to make ourselves happy, when you're sick, when you're suffering, when you're on your deathbed, and when you're really going through a season of pain, if if your happiness of just living life for you is all you got, you will not be satisfied. It's not enough to keep you going. And I think this is a really good answer. I I will sometimes teach uh, students and talk to people and they really struggle. They really do. They say, why is there pain in this world? And they're great questions. But I think that Manad has kind of hit on one of the reasons why pain and suffering makes us realize that living an empty life for ourselves isn't enough. And then when the times are good, we can't really recognize just how empty it really is until we're suffering, until we're struggling. Uh, until we're really at the end of ourselves. This sermon's also kind of reminded me of the diary of David Brainerd. If you've never read that, at least has an episode of Mars Missionaries about it. But it, again, regardless of where you're at, it's it's just this idea that we're struggling, we're sick, we but I'm giving it all for God. And I think that, you know, Manad was already a famous preacher, but he didn't probably know that these sermons would actually be the sermons that ended up having, I think the biggest impact of his career was these sermons he was preaching from his deathbed as he was just getting ready to die. And I I think we just so oftentimes think that what we did on earth wasn't enough. We haven't gone far enough. We haven't been faithful enough. And we find that God actually uses what what we're doing so much more uh, than we realize. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Plez Evans. Plez has been married for 10 years and has two children. He lives in Texas and is fostering to adopt. He works in the cement industry and loves reading Puritans and Reformers and other old theologians and pastors. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. We encourage you to share this episode. As we mentioned at the top, some people have shared these things on Twitter. Maybe you don't use Twitter. Uh, maybe you like to use other social media, or maybe you just talk to people in real life, like a nice, normal human. Regardless of how you can, we would really appreciate it if you could share what you've been hearing here and telling other people about the things that we are trying to do here at Revive Thoughts uh, and letting people know about these podcasts that bring old history back to life. We think that they are very encouraging and edifying. And they're uh, a lot of work to make. It takes a lot of hours and time uh, poured into what we're doing. Uh, and a lot of pieces have to come together. The Lord has blessed us amazingly to be able to do this now for almost four years. And at the same time, 
it really does help us out when you tell others about what we're doing so that that word can reach just more and more people. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.